Good morning. Welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. At Barah Ministries, we know this truth, that Jesus Christ is God. At, um, he, as Lord, he is 100% deity. He is God the Son. He is also 100% true humanity, just like you and me. He is Jesus Christ. The Lord, God the Son, became flesh, Jesus Christ, and lived among us. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the Savior of the whole world, and he is the Jewish Messiah. And those who make Barah Ministries their spiritual home believe in Jesus Christ. We are Christians, and we have a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. And the Lord Jesus Christ is a person, not a thing or a concept. And just as we would do with any person we love, we spend time getting to know him through the study of his word. You can't get to know the Lord without knowing his mind, and the Bible is his exact thinking. In reflecting this week, I was reflecting on wine on how it is made, on where it comes from. And it comes from grapes grown on a vine. And this verse came to mind, John chapter 15, verse 5. I, the Lord Jesus Christ, am the vine, and you believers in Christ are the branches. And the believer who abides in union with me, and I indwelling him, and who, who are the believers that abide in union with him? All of us. We're in union with Christ from the moment of salvation. The believer who abides in union with me and I indwelling him, he bears much fruit, and that's the fruit of the Spirit. For apart from me, as an unbeliever, you can do nothing. As believers in Christ, we are God's fine wine. So doesn't it make sense for us to get to know our God through the study of his word so that he can produce fruit through us? I think it does. And at Barah Ministries, we make a difference by teaching the word of God from the Lord Jesus Christ's perspective and not from man's perspective. We search the scriptures to learn who the Lord is as a person, to learn what our God has to say about himself and his plan for all mankind, and about his personal plan for each one of us. Every hair on your head is numbered. And we look at life from his perspective, not from ours. Today's Bible lesson, teachers don't get no respect. No respect at all. Oh, I tell you, no respect. So no one in his right mind would ever take a leadership position. No one. Why? Because leaders volunteer to take the blame for everyone and everything. Amen? So, but many, including me, sign up for the abuse. And in today's lesson, Paul outlines some of the challenges of teaching and of being a teacher. We don't get no respect. No respect at all. And in addition, as we do every month, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'll honor the ultimate leader, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll learn that his work at the cross made his believers holy and blameless. The Lord's work at the cross made you holy and blameless. And I wonder if you got up this morning, looked in the mirror, and said, Wow, the holy and blameless person. Did you do that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you definitely didn't do that. You looked in the mirror and you said, I'm scared again. That's what you looked. So, so we, but we don't. 
we don't think about this stuff. And that's why in the Lord's Supper lessons for this year, I'm going to remind you of the gifts that you've been given by God that you completely forget about. And last month, I reminded you that you're redeemed. You've been purchased from the slave market of sin. And this month, I want you to know that you are holy and blameless right this minute, which is something you may have forgotten. So when we study the Lord's Supper today, we're going to learn and remember the significance of this holy and blameless gift in our lives. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Let's hear some music. Look at the great and unconditional love God the Father has lavished on us, us being his believers in Christ, that we would be called children of God the Father, and that's what we are. And for this reason, the world of unbelievers doesn't know us or recognize who and what we are. Why? Because the world didn't know the Lord. They rejected a relationship with Jesus Christ. And absolute love, is what we have from our God, a love without conditions or requirements, a one-way love from God to us without hooks or tricks or hoops to jump through to get it. Well, here's Chris Tomlin to sing about it in his song, Jesus Loves Me. Presence, I couldn't run, couldn't. 
Let us pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, it gets lost on us sometime how much you love us, how much you forgive us, how much grace you allow us to have. Thank you for inspiring us to step to the front as leaders. Thank you for giving us the knowledge of you through letting us experience what your son experienced, intense tribulation. And thanks for making our tribulation much less and not even comparable to his. Help us to grow by means of grace through the adversity to become people who reflect you in adverse situations, people who are able to get no respect, yet keep on giving. We ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, teachers don't get no respect. No respect at all. Passage 3 of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians extends from chapter 1, verse 10, to chapter 4, verse 21. This is a long period of time for somebody to spend talking about divisions and rivalries. And we've been taking it bit by bit. But think about how long we've been studying about divisions and rivalries. That should tell you how important it is to know how destructive it is when you have divisions and rivalries in your life. And we all have divisions and rivalries in our lives. And that is not God's wish for us. So something is affecting us in such a way that we do that. (coughs) If you're on a team... That's the worst thing to have is divisions and rivalries and cliques on a team. It's completely destructive to the end of a team. And so the Apostle Paul is addressing rivalries and dissensions in the Corinthian church. And the question we ask is, why is Paul writing and writing so much about divisions and rivalries? Well, he tells us in this next section of the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, from verse 6 to 13. And by the way, this verse 6 took me two hours to figure out. It is complicated, and there's a lot of controversy about the verse, but I think I worked it out for you so you can easily ingest it. Here it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Now with regard to these things, all these things I've been saying in this long passage about divisions and rivalries, brethren, that's a reference to believers in Christ, these things I have applied both to myself and to Apollos for your sake. Myself being a teacher, Apollos being a teacher. And I'm doing it for your sake so that you may learn. Stick to what stands written. What a great thing to say to a Christian. There's a lot of information that's coming at you as a Christian, some from from true teachers, some from false teachers, some from Satan through religion, who wants to, to make you think that God is somehow standing with a foot over your head waiting to come down on you, waiting to crush you, waiting for you to make a mistake so that he can come down on you. I used to think that as a Roman Catholic for 21 years. I thought that he was gathering up all my sins in a computer, and when I died, he was going to sit me in front of him and spit them all back to me. That is not how God operates. That is not how he operates. It's just not. Now, you may want to think that's how he operates, but this says something different. And so when your teachers are telling you that stuff, 
And then when your teachers are telling you that you should feel bad about your sins, okay, you're going to go through your sin period. I did. It was 21 years where you learn, where somebody's teaching you about sin. That's what the Roman Catholic Church is about. And then 29 years in systematic theology where everybody was telling me I had to keep the law. 50 years, slow learner, right? God always puts the slow learners up front. And you're going to go through that, those periods. You're going to go through periods where you think it's all about sin. You're going to go through periods where you think it's all about the law as God ushers you right through that quagmire to what? The truth. And the truth is grace. Grace. And then even when you get to grace, you're going to get this dumb definition of grace. We don't earn it or deserve it, but we get it anyway. That does not sound like what God does at all. That is not a description of unconditional love. Unconditional love is he is ecstatic to extend grace to you. Especially because you don't deserve it. It's not about deserving it. It's about what he wants to do for you. And what he does for us is amazing. Amen? All right, so now with regard to these things, brethren, these things I have applied both to myself and to Apollos for your sake, so you may learn, stick to what stands written, obey the word of God, so that not one of you will become puffed up with arrogance, which is self-absorption instead of self-knowledge, favoring one person over another. That was the source of the rivalries. There were people in the congregation who were rich, and there were people in the congregation who were poor, and the people who were rich were saying they were better than the people who were poor. They're just like the Laodicean church in Revelation. I, have, I am rich, and I have need of nothing. That is not accurate whatsoever about us as people, and we get to find that out at a point in our lives when we're laying in hospice, drooling out of the left side of our mouth, and we can't do anything but... Uh, be waited on again just like we were when we got here. We got here, all we knew was give me some milk and change my diaper. Helpless. We come in helpless, we go out helpless. And all through the middle, we're helpless. It's just we're deluded into thinking we're not. But God's in charge. Stick to what is written reminds us that believers in Christ walk by faith and not by sight. How could we, as a small congregation, be so bold as to think that somebody's going to give us $3 million so that we can build an impact center? We have no right to think that highly of ourselves. We don't. We think highly of our God. We have faith, not sight. You know, you know that I went to Northwestern University. You know that I'm pretty, pretty... Uh, ecstatic about Northwestern and everything Northwestern. There's one thing I hate about Northwestern. It's quarterbacks. (laughs) Finally, we got an offensive coordinator this year who might be able to get us 30 points a game. But what I hate about Northwestern's quarterbacks is they don't trust. They walk by sight and not by faith. And so they will not throw the ball unless the receiver is wide open. Well, how often is a receiver wide open? Never. And when you throw the ball as a quarterback, and please don't, I'm not a quarterback, okay? And I didn't play football, and I don't know anything about football. I'm a fan. I'm a basketball guy. But 
there's a point at a quarterback when you just have to throw to a spot and you're throwing into an area and you are trusting that the receiver will be there. That's it. And if you can't do that as a quarterback, you can't be a quarterback. Northwestern's got all the guys who will not do that. They have, everything has to be clear. And our receivers are not that good at getting open. We're not, they're not good at getting separation, and so we don't score points. We stop you, but we're not going to score points. You don't score points, you don't win. We walk by faith, not by sight. As Christians, we don't have to see it to believe it. We know what God is saying to us because he has communicated in his word. We have never met him, yet we worship him. Isn't that amazing? Amen? It's amazing. Well, the real rivalries in the Corinthian church are among the silent leaders. Not rivalries between the leaders up front, although Paul is using the leaders up front to make a point. Paul's really addressing cliques in this rivalries and divisions passage. Cliques. Paul wants believers at Corinth to learn humility, which is teachability, not aw shucks, dirt kicking, oh, I'm so humble, but the willingness to be a lifelong learner. That's what humility is. The opposite of arrogance. The willingness to learn and to do what the Word of God says because we know it works and it always works. But the people of first century Corinth, and remember Corinth was the Las Vegas of the first century. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Thanks to the influence of the Greeks, the Corinthians thought that humility was a weakness. Why? Because the Greeks were all into the intellect and into knowledge. They didn't think about God. Paul is rebuking the congregation in this entire passage, but Paul doesn't want to single anyone out, and so he directs everything to the teachers rather than to the specific people that he ought to be naming by names. And he wants to get a powerful message to them and have it land solidly that rivalries and divisions are no good. So Paul addresses the arrogance in the Corinthian church without being too direct by including himself and the other teachers in the rebuke, as any great pastor would. I talk mostly about myself and my life so that I don't have to talk about your, you and your life because I know your skeletons. I could just as easily say the stuff that's going on with you up here. There wouldn't be too many people here if I did that. <laughs> but I'm not scared to do it. All right, Paul continues with questions in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, what makes you special? What do you have that you didn't receive from God? All those of you who think you're better than somebody else in your congregation, what makes you so special? What is it that you have that you didn't receive from God? And if you did receive everything from God, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it from God? There is nothing you have that didn't come from God. So now Paul says, your talents, your abilities, your social skills, your blessing, your adversity all come from God. And yes, you heard that last part right. Even your adversity comes from God. And I know people who obsess with the fact that they have adversity in life. Obsess with it. Always thinking about it. Always reflecting on the past. Always reflecting on their mistakes. There is no mistake that you have made or will ever make in your life that didn't pass through the hand of God. Amen? Amen. 
So evidently, if God wants to allow adversity to be a part of your life, evidently he's doing something with adversity for you. And to tell you the truth, if you haven't been kicked out of a congregation or if you haven't been fired from a job, you're not, just not trying that hard. Amen? <laughs> I, got, I got game. Because I just couldn't make it in, in the corporate world because I demanded leaderships from the leaders and they didn't have any. And I got kicked out. Rory, you're so hard to deal with. No, I'm not. Lead me. Stop trying to manage me. Lead me. I don't need to be managed. I'm pretty good at it. Well, that's not acceptable. You, can't, you have to be a sheep, not a leader. That's not me. Couldn't do it. Well, all that adversity, Romans 8.28 says, we know that God works all things together for good for those who love him. He works that to your advantage. And the, the people that I work with in my corporate job, I love executives who have had their butt kicked. The ones who've never had their butt kicked are really hard to deal with. Impossible. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 says this, So quickly you have become satisfied with yourselves. You've already become rich. And apart from us, you've become kings. The Greek is saying ones who reign, ones who have elevated themselves to a throne. Indeed, I wish that you did become kings so that we all might reign with you. There's the sarcasm. Paul's back to being sarcastic. What he's saying is you Corinthians are legends in your own mind because true kings, the true leaders of a church, are the ones who are reigning with gratitude for the cross in mind because that changed everything. The cross changed everything. God, our, our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, won the strategic victory in the creator-creature conflict at the cross. 1 Corinthians 4, 9. For I, Paul, think that God has displayed us apostles, your teachers, as last of all, as men condemned to death, so that we might be a spectacle. The Greek word theatron. A spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. This is a, a multifaceted reference and an amazing reference. Christians in the first century were put into the theatron of the Roman Colosseum. And the emperor, most of them unbelievers, would stand there and they would go thumbs up or thumbs down. And if it was thumbs down, lions would be catapulted into the Colosseum and eat the Christian. And there was a scoreboard. Lions won, Christians nothing the last thing the Lions have ever won. That's why they named the team in Detroit. <laughs> the Lions, they've never won anything since then. <laughs> Should probably go back to that old ancient ritual. <laughs> well, you've heard the idea that when, when somebody dies, I, I just know Joe is looking down on us. Have you ever heard people say that? Yeah, that's false. People in heaven... It's no more sorrow, no more tears. The old things passed away, new things have come. They are not looking down on you. That would make them miserable. But who is looking down on us? This, this word theatron refers to the Supreme Court of Heaven. 
And in the Supreme Court of Heaven, there are elect angels, there are fallen angels. Satan is making a case against Jesus Christ that he is unfair and unloving, and human history was created to resolve that conflict. And so the angels in the Supreme Court of Heaven are looking down. And what Paul is referencing here is that he and the other teachers have become a spectacle in the theatron. And they are condemned. They have adversity that is just out of this world. I'll tell you, we don't get no respect. And that is a teaching aid to the angels in the Supreme Court of Heaven concerning what happened in the angelic conflict between Jesus Christ and his bodyguard, Satan. We have come become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So it's the angels in the Supreme Court of Heaven looking down on us in the theater of heaven to learn the details of this conflict. What will they see when they look down? 1 Corinthians 4.10, We as teachers are fools for Christ's sake. But you are sensible in union with Christ. Now he's continuing the sarcasm. We are weak, but you are strong. You are esteemed, but we are all dishonored. If I hadn't chosen as a father to limit my career and to limit my income so that I could raise my sons, I would not have a relationship with my sons, but I would be wealthy beyond belief. See, that's the decision men have to make. Are you going to marry money or are you going to take care of the family that you started? And you hear men all the time talking about, man, I wish I had spent more time with my kids. I don't. I wish I had spent less time (laughs) with my kids. (laughs) Spending more time with them drives you crazy, amen? (laughs) And then they grow up and they don't talk to you for four years. (laughs) So... When you're in a leadership position, you get all the grief. You go home talking to yourself. You can't believe some of the things that people will do to a leader. It was one time as a a pastor, this lady was pregnant, not married, and she came to me and, and asked me about what the Bible has to say about abortion. And so I told her, And all I was doing was telling her what that book says about when life begins, the whole bit. So what was the natural result of that? Pastor told me to get an abortion. It's not what I did. I told her what was in the Bible. She had to make her own decision, but who got blamed? Me. That's why I don't talk to you guys. Never talk to any of you again. Don't come up to me. Don't ask me any questions. You know that's not my philosophy, but you know what I'm talking about. And you go home, and you just talk to yourself. And you beat pillows. My pillows are abused. Because you just get so mad that this is your life. That everybody thinks you're a fool. Everybody thinks that you're weak. Nobody esteems you when you take a leadership position. And, And that's why I say nobody in their right mind would do it. So obviously I'm not in my right mind. Now, Paul outlines the disadvantages of being up front in 1 Corinthians 4.11. To this present moment, we're hungry and thirsty. 
We are poorly clothed in tattered clothing. We are roughly treated, and we are homeless. Paul was a tent maker to make money. The only church that ever supported him financially was the Philippians church, and that was toward the end of his life. So he had to make money on his own to support himself. It's very much like being the pastor of Barah Ministries. The salary is minimal. I could not live on it. Amen? So y'all need to dig deeper. <laughs> uh, sorry, that just came out. <laughs> First Corinthians. Yeah, that means you'll go from ten dollars to eleven. Thanks. Wow. <laughs> First Corinthians four twelve. And we toil, working with our own hands, yet we're when we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. First Corinthians four thirteen. When we are slandered, which is often, and liabled. Slandered is spoken against, libeled is written against. We speak encouragement. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Welcome to leadership. I'll tell you, we don't get no respect. That's what it's like to be a leader. You men, you're going to be leaders of families. That's what you have to look forward to. You have to look forward to it that your kids will not listen to you, will not respect you. That's the way it is. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now, there are rare exceptions, aren't there, Pierce? Pierce actually likes his dad. That's, I, I like that about you. But a lot, of, a lot of kids don't listen to their parents, and it's just not right. And it's so funny. You tell your kids something, and they go, that can't be right. And then somebody else tells them the same thing. Oh, I got this, this piece of advice from this guy. He said, blah, blah, blah. I said, I said that to you yesterday. Right? That's how it is. Okay. All right. So you just have to accept that. Because you sign up for the leadership, that's what happens. It's okay. Now, Paul has set us up for the big finish of this passage, which we'll take on next week. And I think that's verses 14 to 21. I think it ends at 21. But being a leader, being a teacher is brutal. Because we want to see results from you. And we want you to listen to us. We want you to grow. We want to see fruit from our labor. And, you know, I was uh, sitting out in the car babbling like a baby uh, just before I came in here because Bobby Knight, uh, the, the former coach of the Indiana Hoosiers, went back to Indiana yesterday or a couple of days ago and for the first time in 20 years because he had a lot of bitterness in his heart about how he was treated at the end there. And the ovation and all of his players being there and hugging him, it was just amazing because he's seven, 79 years old and he's real frail now and, you know, walking funny and the whole bit. It was just amazing to see that. But it's just a shame that leaders get the respect when they're about to die or when they become frail, you know, toward the end. It's something that, that we ought to honor our leaders all along and we don't. It's the rare exception rather than the rule that we honor them along the way. Yet as teachers, even though we're not respected here on earth, and perhaps we should be, we press on for the blessed hope of a heaven where leadership is respected, honored, and loved because it is without the disruptions and the disrespect caused by God's enemy, Satan. And as a nation... Our attitude toward our president is the perfect example of how not to treat someone in authority. Amen? It's ridiculous. It's disgusting to me that we treat this person 
this way. And whether you like him or not, he is deserving of the honor that goes to the person who is in that chair. Yet he doesn't get it. And that disgusts me. It's dishonorable. Now, when we return from our five-minute break, we'll take the offering, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Do you know what it means that you've been redeemed? Do you know what it means that you are holy and blameless? We'll find out. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told I belong at the end of the line. With all the other not quite, with all the never get it right. But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time. Cause I'm just a nobody, we're trying to tell everybody. All about somebody who saved my soul Ever since you rescued me You gave my heart a song to sing I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus When Moses had stage fright And David brought a rock to a sword fight you picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen And you changed the world Well, the moral of the story is Everybody's got a purpose So when I hear that devil start talking to me Saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm, I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul For the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus So let me go down, down, down In history As another blood-bought Faithful member of the family And if they all forget my name
Today's Bible lesson, teachers don't get no respect, no respect at all. Well, when God puts us in positions of leadership, he wants us to care for the position well. Luke chapter 12, verse 48 says this, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom is entrusted much of him, it will be asked all the more. Be generous with the gifts that the Lord has given you. Let your giving reflect amazing leadership. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with the offering message. Good morning. I'm Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon for Bra Ministries. And Bra Ministries is a place where real people come to listen to a real pastor teach the real truth in the Word of God. And this week I've been really thinking about a lot of, like Pastor brought it up, adversity and how a lot of people think it's just a bad thing. Every time you hear adversity bad, you think bad or evil or horrible or not good for you, but God makes everything work together for our good. So, you know, we know that He can make anything happen out of anything. And we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, For by the agency of the Lord Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So everything that's been created, even evil, is for him. It's through him. And so in his perfection, it must be good for us, right? And I see it on a daily basis with my children. My daughter's got snot just flowing out of her nose yesterday. She will not blow her nose. She will fight me. She will wrestle. And she's pretty good. She's strong. And I'll, you know, her whole lip's red and her cheeks are red because she's just using her arm like this. And I cannot teach her. I'm like, let me help you blow your nose. No, let me help you blow your nose. It's like God trying to teach us things. Let me help you. No, let me help you. No, we swat him away. <laughs> it's the very same thing. We do it. And, you know, I'm trying to teach her a little bit of nose blow is going to save you a long time. You're not going to be licking and wiping it on the couch. And is that too, is that gross? All right, sorry. It's just, I didn't, I didn't talk about the other end. I mean, that's a whole nother story. Sorry. But point of the story is, you know, like I want her to go through a little adversity, a little, a little trial so that she can get better at it. We're trying to potty train her. We want her to sit on the potty. We want her to sit there and she won't. It's torture for her. It's torture, but she doesn't realize it's for her good. And, you know, we even see in this, in this, this uh, verse that I chose today, Paul is actually in prison writing this. This is a prison epistle. So, you know, you'd think, oh, he's in prison. He can't get anything done. He wrote some of the Bible in prison. I mean, what a phenomenal thing you can do in prison. And then you think about, what about the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, they said he's going to have to die for his plan to work out. Who would agree to that if you're an apostle? You wouldn't agree to that. You wouldn't let anybody touch him. You'd be like, this is not going to happen. But in the end, it was the best thing to happen. It was his plan. And so just like him dying was perfect for us, you giving at the offering is perfect for you. It might seem like suffering, but it's perfect for you. It helps you to learn that you can give and God will still provide for you. And I really feel like if you can't give when you're poor, you won't give when you're well off. You won't give when you're rich. And you think, oh, no, I'll change. I'll be, you know, when I get there, I will. But no, you'll hoard it even more. You'll see those zeros and you'll want it. I mean, at least I would. I'm just being honest. I, I totally would. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm giving now, but wait till I get rich. I'm stopping that stuff. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, everything is through God. Everything is through Him. So if you're going through something, it's, He allowed it, right? 
and his perfection and, and his ability to know more than we can ever know or think, it's perfect for us. So just jump right in. And I think I have one last example is just at work we have this huge project where it's these eighth-inch mirrors that are paneling this huge master bath, and nobody wanted to get their hands wet on it. And so there was a couple guys working, and I ended up getting roped into helping them because they needed a third to lay these panels down. I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to get roped in. And it was going to be a long process, going to have to work through lunch, and I was not looking forward to it. Long story short, we put the first mirror down, and it was chipped on the corner. So we couldn't even use it. We couldn't even start. So it was like, oh, all right, go back to what I was doing. And so, you know, the point of the story is just that it seemed like a horrible thing, and I didn't want to do it, but I just jumped into it because I knew God allowed it and God was going to help me. And what he did was pull me right back out of it. When I jumped in, he pulled me right back out, go back to what you're doing. I was just, just testing you, <laughs> which he does. And, he, you know, it's just us testing ourselves so that we can see that we can get through things. And so just remember that it's, it's all from God and it's through him and it's for him. And that's why you're giving it the offering is for him. So thank you very much. Supper celebration at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ made us holy and blameless. At the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ made us holy and blameless. Welcome to the Lord's Supper celebration, the most intimate expression of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ in the Christian way of living. The Lord demonstrates his desire for a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with his believers by creating a way for us to keep on sharing his body and blood just as he did with his apostles on the night before his death. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 16 say this, When the hour had come and his crucifixion was near, the Lord Jesus Christ reclined at the Passover table, and the apostles reclined with him. 
And the Lord said to the apostles, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Luke twenty two sixteen. For I say to you, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall never again eat this Passover meal until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God the Father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, the Apostle Paul says on behalf of the Lord, as often as you eat this bread, representing his body, and as often as you drink this cup, representing his blood, as a part of the Lord's Supper celebration, you proclaim as a reality and you announce the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead until he comes again at the second coming. The Lord's Supper celebration is a time when the resident members of this congregation join hands through the miles with our non-resident members, and we demonstrate our unity by remembering our Lord together. This is a celebration for which we set aside time. We don't do it on the move. During the Lord's Supper celebration, Jesus wants his believers to look back at the cross for a moment. The rest of the Christian way of life is forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. But this part is looking back for a moment to that cross. And he wants us to remember how he rescued us from the kingdom of death and darkness. He wants us to remember the sacrifice of shedding his blood to cover our sins. He wants us to remember the deliverance to the resurrection life he orchestrated, eternal life, bringing us into his kingdom of light. And most of all, the Lord wants his believers to look forward with eager anticipation that he is coming again. As believers in Christ, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper celebration, we ask ourselves in reflection, what did the Lord Jesus Christ do for us at the cross? At the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ made us holy and blameless. If you're a believer in Christ, right this minute, you are holy and blameless whether you feel that way or not. And what that means is, when we look at things from God's perspective, he is looking at you, and what he sees is holy and blameless. He sees the exact same thing he sees. God the Father sees the exact same thing he sees in you that he sees when he looks at his Son. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 says this, So as those who have been the chosen ones of God the Father whom he has made holy and beloved. You are a divinely loved one, and you have been made holy by God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only holy one, but because of our union with him, he made you holy as well. Isn't that amazing? And you don't think of yourself that way. Now, since God has made you homely, home, home. <laughs> He did. A lot of you, he did. He just made you homely. I, you know, that's his grace. <laughs> now, because God has made you holy and blameless, let's start with a question. And please don't answer the question out loud. Answer it to yourself. As I've been asking Christians a question they ought to know the answer to over the last couple of weeks. Who does God blame when Christians sin? Just answer it to yourself. Who does God blame when Christians sin? Now, let's take a short side trip. We know that Christians are saints in God's eyes, not sinners. Sinners is a term that applies to unbelievers. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God the Father demonstrates his own unconditional love toward all mankind, in that while we were yet sinners, while we were unrighteous, ungodly unbelievers, Christ died a sacrificial death for us at the cross. We also know that saints sin. Believers in Christ continue to sin after salvation. I taught a lesson last year to prepare you for the study of 1 Corinthians, and the lesson was called Saints Sin. It was in October of 2019, I think it was. Yet God says that even though you sin, you are holy and blameless. Can you handle that in your head? Nope. See, we can't handle that. Because we want to look at life from our own perspective. We don't want to look from his perspective. Holy ones sin, and the Apostle John confirms that saints sin, even though it is preferable not to. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, here's what he says. My little children, a reference to believers in Christ, I am writing these things to you in this letter of the Bible so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, that's a first-class condition, if in the Greek, if and it's true. If anyone sins, and of course believers in Christ do, we have an advocate with God the Father. Oh, really? Who? Jesus Christ, the only righteous one. When you sin, Jesus Christ speaks up for you. Why would he do that? Because he paid for our sins at the cross. It's done. And now you're holy and blameless. And that's amazing. Now back to the question. Who does God blame then when Christians sin? You can answer now. The flesh. He blames the flesh in us. He could have removed the flesh. And you can write that into your notes, by the way, so you remember it. He could have removed the flesh at salvation. He didn't. Why not? Check out 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about how he has an angel of Satan to buffet him so that he might not exalt himself. God could have removed your flesh at salvation, but he didn't. We'd be a mess if he had taken the the flesh away. We'd think it was us that was wonderful. So God blames Satan, the world, and the flesh when we sin. Who do we blame When we sin. Ourselves. We blame ourselves and we blame others. So. We listen. Listen to Satan's promptings. When we sin. And we completely ignore what God has to say to us in Romans 7. Where Paul realized that. That that he realized that. There is evil present in him, the one who wants to do good. He realized that there is a battle going on. He joyfully concurs with the law of God in the inner man, but he sees another law in his members, the flesh, which culminated in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in union with Christ. We don't believe that. We're condemning ourselves all the time. Yet, what was the lesson title last week? We have no right to judge ourselves or others, but we do. All right, now the legalist will chime in here. So what you seem to be saying is that Christians can sin anytime they want to. That's correct. We can sin anytime we want to, and we do sin anytime we want to. 
Why? Well, you're giving people a license to sin. Actually, God gives us a license to sin because he gave us free will. We can act independently from God. Well, the legalist is back. The legalist says, so what you seem to be saying is you can just sin and get away with it. I think we need to repent from our sins. And the thing that's in there, what is it? I, 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 I. But we're not God. You can I, I, I think, I think, I think. Well, the pastor said I, 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 all you want to. But it's not what, it's what this says. It's what the Bible says that matters. What does the Bible have to say? And so few Christians are adept at the Bible that they don't even know what it is that they believe in or what their God is actually saying to them. Now, are we going to follow a legalist? Are we going to follow what false teachers say? Or are we going to follow what God says in his word? Because anyone who thinks God wants Christians to sin is a bit touched. God doesn't want Christians to sin. Because sin leads to death. Let's get God's point of view, though. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says this. The Mosaic law was introduced. And I love the way the Greek puts it. The Greek is so romantic. The Mosaic law came in alongside of us so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. That was what the age of Israel and the Mosaic law was all about. Through rituals, God taught the Jews that they were sinners and they needed a Savior. That there was a law and they couldn't keep it, so they needed a Savior. That's what the age of Israel taught. When there is a law, we break it. We drive above the speed limit. We walk on the grass when the sign says don't. We disobey a a parent and get hit in the head with a baseball bat. You remember I told you that story. My mom said don't go out of the yard. I went out of the yard. I got hit in the head with a baseball bat. And that's what made me the spiritual giant that I am today. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) You got hit in the head with a baseball bat. You disobey your parent, you're going to get hit in the head. That was a powerful lesson. Yet, in the spiritual realm, when we make mistakes, which are called sins, what does God do according to Romans 5.20? Grace abounds all the more. He gives more grace. He gives a greater grace. All right, then Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 say this, for the legalist's benefit, what shall we believers in Christ say then? Are we to continue sinning so that God's grace may increase, abounding even more to us? Romans 6, 2, may it never be. What does that mean in English? Don't be silly. Ook. The, the, the word for never there is the strongest not word in Greek. Ook. No way, no how. No. How could you ever think that? How shall we, believers in Christ, who died to sin at the cross, along with Christ dying at the cross for our sins, how shall we still live in sin? We shall not. Taking advantage of God's grace is a childish thing to do, and we would never want to do that. Yet we do make mistakes, and then we do something to ourselves and to others that God doesn't do to us or others. We judge ourselves before the time. That's what I was talking about last week. Marathoners don't judge themselves in the middle of the race because marathoners who win races are in the middle of the pack at the middle of the race. If you start judging yourself in the middle of the race, you're going to miss it. 
And as we learned last week, we have no right to judge ourselves or others in the middle of our life's race. God judges our race at the end. Amen? Amen? Yeah. When we are over-focused on sin, when we are over-focused on keeping the law, we miss taking advantage of the generosity of God's grace. More importantly, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, to the legalistic Galatians, I, Paul, do not nullify the grace of God. There's that ook again. There's no way, no how, I'm going to nullify the grace of God by overthinking about sins or the law. That's what Paul says strongly. For if righteousness comes through keeping the Mosaic law, if righteousness, if we get righteousness credited to us because we didn't sin or because we kept the law, then Christ died on the cross needlessly. But the truth of the matter is we can't stop sinning and we can't keep the law. And we don't. If I told you that I had a Snickers bar in my freezer and I told you you could have anything in my house to eat except that Snickers bar, what's the first thing you would eat? The Snickers bar. And then you would get shot or cut. I'd stab you right in this little fatty part right here. So it wouldn't kill you, but it would hurt you badly for very, very many months. Amen? Stay away from my Snickers bar. When we ignore what Christ did at the cross for us by shedding his blood, the complete and only satisfactory payment for our sins once and for all time, when we think that we can clean up our own sins, when we think we can be Christ-like, that makes my skin crawl when people say that. I was thinking about that this week, how you put Christ here who's perfect, then you put you next to it. What would you see? People would look at you and they go, eh, They'd look at Christ and they'd fall down on the floor. Every time anybody looks at him, they fall down on the floor. Nobody's going to fall down on the floor when they look at you. Except that homely part from before that I was saying. So, I don't get that. When we think we can be good and impress God, we delude ourselves. Well, what did Christ do for all mankind at the cross? Why do we look back to remind ourselves? Here's what he did. Colossians 2.13, when you were spiritually dead in your transgressions and were in the uncircumcision of your flesh at physical birth, we're all born physically alive and spiritually dead. God the Father made you spiritually alive together in union with Christ at the point where you accepted a relationship with Christ. Having forgiven us, how many of our transgressions? I didn't hear you. All. All of them, that's right. Colossians 2.14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And Jesus Christ has taken that certificate of debt, that long list of your sins, and nailed it to the cross. And so your sins are paid for, past, present, and future, once for all time, and they're never to be thought of again. As a result, believers in Christ are redeemed, that is, purchased from slavery to sin. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 say this, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life you inherited from your forefathers. The Lord didn't purchase you from the slave market of sin with money. 
How did he purchase you? First Peter 1 Peter 1.19, you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He bought you with his life. The Lord's work at the cross makes you holy and blameless. But do you feel holy and blameless? You don't. Why? Because you focus on sin that is already paid for instead of focusing on serving the gracious one. And when you refuse to accept what Christ did for you at the cross, you're telling the Lord that you don't accept his finished work on your behalf. And my question is, how does that help you? A passage in Colossians brings the point home. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. And although you believers in Christ were formerly alienated from the life of God as spiritually dead unbelievers and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Deeds, Colossians 1.22, Yet the Lord Jesus Christ has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death on a cross. That death on a cross was designed to get a definite result. That's what the Greek says. And what was the definite result? In order to present you believers in Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, before God the Father, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, completely sanctified, absolutely perfect as you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in that place. Amazing. Instead of being moved away, or, or, here's Colossians 1.23. And why, how does that happen? If indeed you continue in the faith. And there are a lot of people who think that that's a reference to salvation. That if, if, if you don't turn your back on God, no. See, when you were baptized by the Holy Spirit, you were placed into union with Christ. You can turn your back all you want to on God. He's going with you. You can't lose your salvation. John 10, 28, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. You can't get away from God. So what does this mean, if indeed you continue in the faith? This if is a first-class condition if in the Greek, and it's combined with a particle, gi, G-E. It's I, E-I, gi, and it means if indeed you continue in the faith, and of course I, Paul, absolutely believe you will. It's an expression of absolute confidence. It's like saying without a doubt you will. Why? Because you'll be firmly established and steadfast by studying the Word of God and not moved away from studying the Word of God by an outside agent. Not being moved away by anyone or anything. Ook, not, no way, never. Now what is he actually saying here? He's saying that as believers in Christ, stay close to God. Stick what, with what is written. And don't listen to the enemy who's telling you that all these lies that are designed to get you to forget the victory you already have in Christ. But we love listening to Satan. We love listening to his lies. And we love believing that when we sin, we should pull out a rubber hose and beat ourselves and feel bad about it. We love it. Because that's the way we think about things. I can't even stand to listen to radio anymore. You know, they're talking about Bobby Knight on the radio. They didn't bring up one good thing the guy ever did. He had a 98% graduation rate. 98% of his players graduated. And the 2% was probably one guy. They never bring that up. 
They don't talk about the championships. They don't talk about how when one of his players was uh, in a car accident and ended up in a wheelchair, how he put together a fundraiser and brought all this money to be able to support this guy. Don't talk about any of that. Oh, he threw a chair. Big deal. Oh, he was yelling at the players. Big deal. It's better not to do that. But everyone has a style. Our job is to adjust to the style of our coaches. Look at the results. 902 victories. Amazing. All I wanted to do was win. Yeah, that's right. So if indeed you continue in the faith, and of course you will, without a doubt, firmly established and steadfast by studying the Word of God, not moved away from studying the Word of God by an outside agent, not being moved away by anyone or anything, from the hope of the gospel. What is that? The absolute confidence of the coming exit resurrection of the church, which we call the rapture, that you have heard about, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Instead of being moved away from the conscious knowledge of the hope we have, the absolute confidence we have of our victory, we need to listen to the Word of God over and over and over again because we spend two hours in the Word and we spend 166 hours in the world with people telling us that we're fools for studying, that we're fools for doing this, we're fools for listening to this, and we are not. We have absolute confidence of a victorious present and a victorious future, and we are to keep on pursuing the prize of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, gold, silver, and precious stones, by doing the things that God puts in front of us to do. And what does he put in front of us to do? He puts in front of us to influence one person at a time, in one conversation at a time. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, believers in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in union with Christ. Ephesians 1, 4, Just as God the Father chose us, believers in Christ, to be in union with Christ before the foundation of the world in eternity past, that we would be holy and blameless before the Father. We have the peace of God the Father. He has nothing against us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. That's the God we have, who loves us unconditionally, who forgives us totally, and who has placed us into a sphere of grace. You are holy and blameless thanks to what Christ did for you at the cross. And God the Holy Spirit is continuing to perfect your holiness so that you are conformed to the image of the Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And God the Holy Spirit has never failed a single time, and he is not going to fail with you. You are not going to ruin his perfect record. Oh, yeah, you're going to graduate. So as, we, <laughs> so as we look back at the cross during the Lord's Supper celebration, let's rest in the finished work of our Lord, and let's not be moved away by a smack-talking enemy who wants us to abandon our victory and our confidence by lying to us. So now it's time to enjoy the elements of the Lord's Supper. So obeying God's command, we keep on celebrating Christ and his cross regularly. We eat to remember who he is as a person, and we drink 
to remember with gratitude what God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ have done to save us. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28 say this. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is being broken for you. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, the blood of a new testament, a new covenant, blood poured out for the many for the forgiveness of their sins. So as you enjoy the bread and the cup, remember the cross and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who hung there. Let us keep on giving thanks that we are loved unconditionally, that we are forgiven totally, and that we are accepted fully by a Lord who is always there for us, the one on whom we can depend. And let's keep on being transformed by his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his, wor- and, and his word. And so we'll hear a song as we enjoy the elements. Do you remember what I said earlier? John fifteen five. I, the Lord Jesus Christ, am the vine, and you are the branches. The believer who abides in me and I in union with him, indwelling him, bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Danny Goki puts that sentiment in song, if you ain't in it. I've got things that I thought I filled my heart up, sitting on top, winning. But that ain't winning I've chased all the good stuff All the bad stuff Stuff the world calls living But that ain't living Hey, hey Don't really matter what I do Hey, hey Don't mean nothing without you Want all that you got, pour my heart towards you. I want you to. Hey, hey, nothing else is gonna matter. Hey, hey, if you're not what I'm after.
pretty good how you got all those ah, 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 ahs in there. I like that. Well, the closing moments of our study are for the benefit of anyone who doesn't have a personal relationship with the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want you to know that God wants you, and what God wants from you is that you make the most important decision of your life. Well, as human parents, we are often emotional, arbitrary, and sentimental. We tell our children exactly what we want them to do, expecting that they'll do it. And quite often, they do the opposite. Right, Deacon Denny? (laughs) You need to send them over to me. I'll put that hickey knot on their head. They'll be doing everything you want. And quite often, when they ask us for an exception to our request, I know I didn't do exactly what you asked, but please, 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 can I do it my own way? Often our emotional, arbitrary, and sentimental side kicks in, and we allow them to go against our requests. We allow them to disobey. And by doing this, we teach them to ignore our requests in critical matters. And many people think God is a similar parent. God tells us exactly what we must do to be saved, And many don't do it, but they think in the end God will be emotional, arbitrary, and sentimental, and he'll let them into heaven their own way. But in John chapter 14, verse 6, God makes it clear that that is not the case. Jesus says, I am the way to salvation, I am the truth through the word of God, and I am the resurrection life, eternal life. And no one comes to the Father but through believing in me. Your salvation is a critical matter. And the Lord isn't emotional or arbitrary or sentimental about it. He is crystal clear. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. What is God's will in the matter of your salvation? Well, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us what God's will is not. It says, it is not God's will for any of you unbelievers to perish in the lake of fire, but for all of you to come to repentance, which is a change of mind about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. What is God's will is simple, and it's revealed in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believe. If we ignore God's critical requests, there are consequences. John chapter 3, verse 36 says this, He who believes in the Son has the resurrection life right at that moment. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. So who is this God who saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I, Paul, delivered to you as of primary importance the gospel message I also received, that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. So if you want to get to heaven, it's probably best just to do what God asks you to do. Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. And when we believe, it means we simply take God's word for it in the matter of what it takes to be saved. We just do it. Well, we close with a song in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. The Apostle Paul tells us this. In union with Christ, we believers in Christ have redemption 
through Christ's shed blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the glorious riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. June Murphy echoes this sentiment in her closing song, We're Forgiven.
forgiveness, we're forgiven. We all stand forgiven. By the grace of God, forgiven. And we celebrate. We're so thankful. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we're just so grateful for the fact that you gave us life. And even more grateful that in eternity past, you created a plan for mankind and a personal plan for each one of us. And we just appreciate you so much. It's a pleasure to be able to come here and to study the Word of God and to learn the mind of your Son. And as we go forth this week, Let us be exactly what you want us to be in the world, a reflection of you and of your Son, guided by God the Holy Spirit, to minister to a lost and dying world and to invite people to hear an amazing message of freedom and to respond to it so that they can spend an eternity with you and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, thanks for watching, and thanks for listening.